Hello, and welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Reagan Duffy, and I'm here with my co-host, Kelly Gurner. Welcome, Kindred Spirits. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Kindred Spirits, we don't know where you live, but here in Southern California, it is rainy and gray this week. And like the true SoCal residents that we are, we never complain about the rain because we always need it. Kelly, how are you keeping yourself warm and dry this week? Oh, I love the rain, but this week might be trying even my patience. So we live near the Arroyo Seco in Northeast LA, and Spanish speakers know that Arroyo Seco literally translates to dry gulch. So most of the year, the Arroyo is dry, and it's a pretty place to like walk our dogs and enjoy the native plants and wildlife. But when it rains, we get to experience it as a river. So I like to walk in the rain, especially if it's the typical LA rain, which is more of a drizzle. So I'll definitely head down to the Arroyo at some point and see how high that water level is. And then, you know, our landscape just changes a lot depending on how much water we get in a winter. So it's going to be really interesting to see what kind of a spring we're going to get with such a wet winter so far. And then, of course, after a walk in the rain, the best way to get warm and dry is curled up with a book. I am starting 2023 by dipping into a few books that have been on my library holds list forever. Less is Lost by Andrew Sean Greer and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. And so far, both are excellent. Nice. I also like a good book on the couch on a rainy day. We are all recovering from the COVID that caught us at the end of our vacation. So that was kind of a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, but, you know, I don't ever mind an excuse to curl up on the couch and nap and read. Our cat Griffin is an excellent cuddler, and he rarely misses an opportunity to curl up on your chest. He's also trying to make up for the fact that we left him for five days for vacation. Right, right. Um, he's 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 taking out his his cuddle revenge. Oh, for sure. So I've been doing a lot of snuggling with him on the couch in kind of our front room where you have a nice view of the street. And I've been doing some rereading of one of my favorite middle grade fantasy series because I really need something easy right now because sure. my my brain is a little foggy still. So I'm rereading Tamara Pierce's Protector of the Small Quartet. And it's about the first girl in her fantasy land of Tordal to openly try to earn her knighthood. And I just, I honestly, I love all of her books, but I especially love this quartet. Like, I just really love her main character. I really love kind of the character arc that she goes on. And it's just one of my favorite series of hers. So that's been kind of nice. So Reagan, I saw on Goodreads that that you had started rating the protector of the small quartet. And I was wondering if maybe just like during the lull between Christmas and New Year's, you were like going back and re-rating all of the Tamara Pierce books. Yeah, that's what I was doing. <laughs> but- well, I wasn't re I didn't change their rating. I think I just added another read to it. Like you can yeah, you can do, you that. Can do another read date. Yeah. So I don't well, I'm think glad that. that you got to revisit some old friends. I did. I did. And sadly, I did lose my sense of smell for a few days. And that has greatly diminished my other favorite thing to do in the cold, rainy weather, which is enjoy hot tea. But my sense of smell is starting to come back. So I'm trying out all the tea in my David's tea sampler that I got for Christmas. So that's kind of nice. Oh, I love David's tea. That's oh, great. yeah. 
some and some of their holiday teas are so good. So I like now, that their teas have sugar in them. Yes, yes, <laughs> they're already a little bit sweet. Uh huh. So I'm glad I can smell again, so I can appreciate the tea again. For a couple of days, it was uh, everything just tastes like water. Oh, poor Reagan. It's all right. I'm on the mend. I'm on the mend. Moving into the meat of our episode. Yeah, we are continuing our discussion about Anne Shirley herself. So she's our kindred spirit again for this episode. And today in our story club, we want to discuss more about Anne's imagination and the way that that plays into her curiosity and intelligence. The breadth and depth of Anne's imagination is one of the first things we learn about Anne. In fact, before she even appears, the station master tells Matthew that Anne preferred being outside with its scope for the imagination to the comfort of a waiting room. Our quote of the episode today comes from the very first thing that Anne says on the page, and it illustrates just how big of a role her imagination is going to play in this book. Anne says, I suppose you are Mr. Matthew Cuthbert of Green Gables, she said in a particularly clear, sweet voice. I'm very glad to see you. I was beginning to be afraid you weren't coming for me, and I was imagining all the things that might have happened to prevent you. I had made up my mind that if you didn't come for me tonight, I'd go down the track to that big wild cherry tree at the bend and climb up into it to stay all night. I wouldn't be a bit afraid, and it would be lovely to sleep in a wild cherry tree all white with bloom in the moonshine, don't you think? You could imagine you were dwelling in marble halls, couldn't you? And I was quite sure you would come for me in the morning if you didn't tonight. Anne's imagination is the lens through which she, and thus we the readers, experience her world. Although modern readers enjoy Avonlea as a quaint village, when the book was published, Avonlea would have been a commonplace little town and one that is brought to life and made so memorable in Anne's colorful rendering of it. Anne's vivid imagination is a bit bewildering for many of the more prosaic people she meets in Avonlea. Matthew is dumbfounded at first by Anne, but he quickly comes to enjoy listening to her flights of fancy. Marilla finds Anne's imagination to often be a source of consternation, although she secretly is frequently amused by it. Marilla is a bit distrustful of imagination when it seems to her too much like lying. Diana is impressed by Anne's imagination and is the foundation for much of the girls' play together. Miss Stacy sees Anne's imagination as proof of her intelligence and finds ways to encourage it alongside Anne's love of learning. And like most personality traits, Anne's imagination has two sides to it, both the good and the bad. Anne's imagination is the source of her curiosity and intelligence. It lets her find romance and intrigue wherever she goes, and it provides her solace and joy throughout her life. But taken too far, it leads Anne into many scrapes resulting from inattention and thoughtlessness, and like any form of escapism, prevents her from accepting and participating in reality. Learning how to use her imagination thoughtfully and with purpose Balancing it with real life is one of Anne's growth arcs throughout the book. During that first drive from the train station to Green Gables, Anne tells Matthew how much her imagination has saved her in her early life. Her first monologue doesn't simply enchant Matthew with her fancies. It also demonstrates that for Anne, imagination is her safest place. Even after her first discussion about sleeping in the cherry tree, her conversation is peppered with the things she has imagined. They seem more real to her and more interesting to her than anything she's actually experienced. She shares very little about her life, briefly touching on the bleakness of the orphanage as it had so little scope for imagination, but immediately veering off into the backstories she imagined for the other orphans. 
We quickly see how Anne uses her imagination to cope with anything difficult in her life. And it's obvious how, up to this point, her life has indeed been quite difficult. Anne goes on at length about how she imagines grand and beautiful dresses for herself when she's self-conscious about her old clothing, and how she used to imagine she lived on Prince Edward Island. She also shares how she imagines herself beautiful, but the limit of her imagination is her red hair. Right away, we see that Anne's imagination has been one of the biggest coping mechanisms in her young, neglected life. Anne fills in all the gaps in her life with her imagination. She imagines riches and opulence where there is squalor and poverty. She imagines friends instead of isolation. When Marilla asks Anne to tell her about herself, Anne responds with, Oh, what I know about myself isn't really worth telling, said Anne eagerly. If you'll only let me tell you what I imagine about myself, you'll think it ever so much more interesting. Anne sketches out a stark, lonely life when Marilla instructs her to stick with the facts. And so it's quite clear that the embellishment of her imagination is part of what's let her survive with so much of her hope and optimism intact. Anytime Anne is faced with disappointment or heartbreak, she uses her imagination to ease the sting of it. When Diana's mother forbids the girl's friendship after the raspberry cordial incident, Anne finds the tragic beauty in their situation. Fare thee well, my beloved friend. Henceforth, we must be as strangers, though living side by side, Anne says, and requests a lock of Diana's hair to remember her by. (laughs) Oh, it's so dramatic. As if there was any danger of Anne forgetting the girl who lives in the adjacent farm. But by imagining their separation as this majestic moment of pathos, she can better deal with the very real disappointment of losing a beloved friend. Anne's imagination is as vivid and far-reaching as it is due to her quick intelligence. Part of what drives that wild imagination is Anne's curiosity about the world. She tells Matthew, isn't it splendid to think of all the things there are to find out about? It just makes me feel glad to be alive. It's such an interesting world. It wouldn't be half so interesting if we knew all about everything, would it? There'd be no scope for imagination then, would there? And that kind of interest in the world is a true marker of intelligence. Anne wonders. She questions. She wants to know the whys and the hows. She's not content with just memorizing recitations, and that lets her learn in a deep and organic way. Luckily, once Miss Stacy arrives... She is able to harness Anne's imagination into her schoolwork. We know Miss Stacy has a positive genius for engaging her students. And instead of seeing Anne's imagination as a distraction, Miss Stacy sees in it Anne's intelligence and creativity. We see that once Miss Stacy arrives, Anne's imagination has a positive channel to direct it, and that she's less prone to letting her imagination get the better of her. One channel for Anne's imagination is the Story Club sparked by the fiction writing they're doing in class. Anne, of course, finds it easy to write fiction, creating beautiful heroines, handsome heroes, and tragic circumstances by the handful. And despite the comedy in the idea of 13-year-old girls writing tragic romances where, quote, everyone dies, the story club sounds an awful lot like a real writing group, the girls critiquing each other's stories and improving their storytelling abilities. Anne thrives in school. New worlds of thought, feeling, and ambition, fresh, fascinating fields of unexplored knowledge seem to be opening out before Anne's eager eyes. Having a teacher that encourages new and different ways of thinking, as Miss Stacy does, gives Anne an opportunity to use her curiosity and wonder in concrete, practical ways, as well as the daydreaming, poetical ways. 
Anne imagines all sorts of details that give shape and color and romance to life. And for Anne, romance isn't just about relationships. Romance is anything that is dramatic and big, even, or rather especially, tragedy. She says to Marilla, my life is a perfect graveyard of buried hopes. That's a sentence I read in a book once, and I say it over to comfort myself whenever I'm disappointed in anything. I don't see where the comforting comes in myself, said Marilla. Why, because it sounds so nice and romantic, just as if I was a heroine in a book, you know? I'm so fond of romantic things, and a graveyard full of buried hopes is about as romantic a thing as one can imagine, isn't it? I'm rather glad I have one. <laughs> is she talking about glad she has a graveyard of buried hopes, or yes. glad she has an imagination? <laughs> I think she's glad that she has a graveyard full of buried hopes. Oh man, well who doesn't? <laughs> It is interesting that the actual tragedy in Anne's life, she dismisses as prosaic and boring. Remember, she told Marilla it's not even worth talking about. But the grand dramatic tragedies in books are actually the things she aspires to. And of course, the tragedy in Anne's life isn't prosy or boring to us, the readers. She truly had a tragic upbringing. She was orphaned, basically an indentured servant, neglected and likely abused. But to her, it's boring and uninteresting. And I suppose that's the nature of tragedies. When it happens to you, it's just terrible, not something to aspire to. When it happens to other people, to fictional characters, it's interesting and romantic. I think that's right. And I also think it's possible that Anne invokes these grand tragic moments from literature, maybe as a pathway to feeling her own feelings. My speculation is that in Anne's upbringing, she probably had a lot of people telling her that children should be seen but not heard and didn't have any real outlets for emotional support. I think that's very true. She talks a lot when she talks about any adults in her life, always ending with, and then she tells me I talk too much. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, she learned the lesson early on that anything she had to say was not going to be given very much value or weight. Right. So then reading an especially sad scene in a book gives Anne permission to sink as deeply into her feelings as she needs to. And the reality is, is that Anne's life truly is a perfect graveyard of buried hopes. Look at all those hopes she's had to bury along the way in her very young life. You know, the hope for loving parents, for safety and security in childhood, for true friendship and community with other children, even for regular schooling. I mean, that's all very tragic. And if Anne can feel her own grief better by quoting the poets and authors, well, I think she's entitled to it. I think you're quite right about that. It is often so much easier to let ourselves experience sad and difficult emotions through someone else to cry at music or a movie because it lets us unlock that sadness in a safe way. I was also thinking about how early childhood tragedy shows up in so much of children's literature and children's culture. Oh, I know. Most heroines in children's pop culture have lost a parent. There's even a dark joke about how your days are numbered if you're a parent in a Disney movie. And it's partly a shorthand to give the character some reason to struggle on their own, especially if the main character is a child. After all, children from safe, loving homes are not allowed to go on wild adventures. And I was certainly fascinated about orphanage life after seeing Annie as a little kid. My sister and I were obsessed with playing orphans and practicing running away from scary matrons and living by our wits. It's even a little ironic that Anne's own story is one of the reasons we romanticize orphans. 
Oh, it's so true. And, you know, I used to ask my mom if I was an orphan or if she had adopted me all the time. I'm sure it made her absolutely nuts. But I think like, Anne, you know, I was probably looking for a little drama and pathos in my young life. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, our poor parents who are providing us this safe, loving, right, loving. home <laughs> where we don't have to worry about anything. You know, and we're all like, oh, fantasizing only, being orphans. If only I was in, if only I was an orphan living on my own. Right. I remember singing like Oliver, like, oh, yes. <laughs> like I'd never been, never eaten as a child. <laughs> right. Exactly. Your mom's like, you just had a snack. Seriously. <laughs> oh, Lord. So besides imagining tragedies, Anne also invents evocative names for the landmarks around Green Gables, and she imagines games and fairy tales for her and Diana in their play. In Anne's mind, it's not just a rainbow, it's a dryad scarf. It's not just frost, it's a fairy's footprints across her window. There's poetry in the way Anne experiences the natural world that is deeply connected to the way she reveres beauty. And as modern readers, we love this about Anne. Anne's habit of imagining her life to be even more special and magical than it actually is, is one of those character traits that makes her lovable and interesting and relatable and a touchstone heroine of children's literature. But if you think back to our discussion a few episodes ago about some of the themes present in early children's literature, Anne's fanciful tendencies, and particularly her connection to the natural world, also signal to the reader that she herself is uniquely pure of spirit, a creature unspoiled by society, and a true innocent, an ambassador for what childhood itself should be. Another benefit to Anne's impressive imagination is her empathy. Anne frequently is able to put herself in another's position, whether that's of Mrs. Lynde being insulted or Miss Barry being jumped on. It's what gives her apology such resonance because she really can make herself feel what it must have been like for the other people. Mm-hmm. And she can use her imagination to invoke the empathy of others. For instance, following Anne's blow up with Mrs. Lynde, Anne says to Marilla, just imagine how you would feel if somebody told you to your face that you were skinny and ugly, pleaded Anne tearfully. An old remembrance suddenly rose up before Marilla. She had been a very small child when she heard one aunt say of her to another, what a pity she is such a dark, homely little thing. Marilla was every day of 50 before the sting had gone out of that memory. Mm. I don't say that I think Mrs. Lynde was exactly right in saying what she did to you, Anne, she admitted in a softer tone. Anytime Anne catches herself being uncharitable or judgmental, she'll employ her imagination to extend empathy to the other person. Well, anytime except for when it involves Gilbert Blythe. I mean, Anne can only be pushed so far. Her imagination is good, but there are limits. There are limits. <laughs> And as much good as Anne's imagination does for her, it comes with some negative side effects. One of the early hurdles in Marilla and Anne's relationship was Anne's imagination, which Marilla interpreted as a predilection for lying. When Marilla's amethyst brooch went missing, Marilla was more alarmed by the idea that Anne was untruthful or untrustworthy than by the idea that Anne might have just carelessly misplaced it. Anne's invented confession was in part born of Marilla's refusal to believe that Anne was not at fault, and Anne seized the chance to use her imagination to get herself out of a scrape, and didn't understand that Marilla thought anything other than honesty is sinful. Lying was seen to be an incurable vice at the time, something inherited from parentage. If Anne is truly a liar, then Marilla has made a huge mistake in taking Anne in, and she has put Matthew and herself in danger. 
Luckily, once the brooch is found, Marilla is able to see that she put Anne in such a position that she had to confess and doesn't hold Anne's dramatic story about losing the brooch against her. A moment where Anne's imagination runs away with her is the haunted wood. We find out when Marilla asks her to run over to the berries to pick up an apron pattern in the evening that Anne and Diana have told each other such scary stories about the wood between their properties in an effort to make Avonlea less commonplace that they really start to believe them. Anne says, a haunted wood is very romantic, Marilla. We chose the spruce grove because it's so gloomy. Oh, we have imagined the most harrowing things. There's a white lady that walks along the brook just about this time of the night and wrings her hand and utters wailing cries. She appears when there is a death in the family. And the ghost of a little murdered child haunts the corner up by Idlewild. It creeps up behind you and lays its cold fingers on your hand. Oh, Marilla, I wouldn't go through the haunted wood after dark now for anything. I'd be sure the white things would reach out from behind the trees and grab me. Marilla is not impressed by this. And she goes on to make Anne go through the woods, saying, I've had my doubts about that imagination of yours right along. And if this is going to be the outcome of it, I won't countenance any such doings. Marilla supposes this will cure Anne of her wild imagination. It doesn't exactly cure Anne, since in the very next chapter, she's back to imagining dryads in the rainbow. But she's more careful about dreaming up scary things. I think many kids have had similar experiences as they grow up, scaring themselves silly with ghost stories and urban legends. Anne takes it one step further by creating these creepy stories from whole cloth. Stories that are good fun in the daylight have a tendency to run away from you in the dark. Oh, it's so true. How many times have you ended up staying up all night because of just imagining some sort of monster in the shadows, right? I mean, generations of kids scaring themselves silly with Bloody Mary in the bathroom. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And, you know, Anne's imagination, robust as it is, gets the better of her in social situations as well. Anne sometimes finds herself slaying dragons that are not actually there in service of her romantic aspirations. For example, in the unfortunate Lily Maid chapter, Anne is so distressed by the humiliation of the sinking Dory that she manages to completely overlook the real romance of her rescue. Likewise, she imagines herself dishonored in front of Josie Pye, so she walks the ridgepole and injures herself. She imagines Gilbert laughing at her when delivering a recitation, so she pushes through her stage fright to deliver a powerful performance. Anne also is just as good at imagining bad things happening as she is imagining good things happening. She frequently dwells on the image of Gilbert beating her in class or of failing the entrance exams. This girl who can imagine a friend in the window or satin dresses instead of outgrown hand-me-downs also imagines terrible fates for herself as well. Marilla notes from early on in Anne's stay, her most serious shortcomings seem to be a tendency to fall into daydreams in the middle of a task and forget all about it until such time as she was sharply recalled to earth by a reprimand or a catastrophe. I mean, same. Several of Anne's funniest moments come out of this particular flaw. She regales Diana with a story of how she was imagining a particularly romantic and tragic story and then forgot to put the cover over the pudding sauce, thus leading to a mouse drowning in the sauce. And then, to make matters worse, her imagination kicked into gear again, and she was so busy imagining being a fairy, she forgot to tell Marilla about the sauce, leading to Anne remembering this key detail only at the table with a guest in attendance. (laughs) What's also funny about that scene is Anne is so busy telling this story about all of the stories she's imagining leading to this incident, that she's neglected to notice that Diana is getting sick on the current wine. 
Right, 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 right. Once again, her imagination is distracting her in real time. Marilla's main complaint about Anne tends to be incidents of this sort. Pies burned to a crisp because Anne was daydreaming about a new island she found in the brook, emptying the pan of milk into a basket of yarn balls instead of the pig's bucket, and walking off the edge of a log bridge into the brook while wrapped up in her daydreams. And you can understand why, for practical Marilla, this kind of sort of wasted time and energy and resources is such a problem. And Anne even knows this about herself, telling Marilla, my besetting sin is imagining too much and forgetting my duties. I'm striving very hard to overcome it. And now that I'm really 13, perhaps I'll get on better. Ultimately, one of the proofs that Marilla gives of Anne's maturity is relying on Anne's ability to be steady and responsible with tasks. While Anne's imagination has saved her from the bleakness of reality in her past, there are, of course, times when it runs too far in the other direction. Anne even says of this tendency, the worst of imagining things is that the time comes when you have to stop, and that hurts. Sometimes she is so wrapped up in what could be that she misses what's right in front of her. We will see that Anne is not quite cured of this in this book because this tendency is one of her main obstacles in regards to a romantic relationship with Gilbert. Anne imagines so clearly her dashing romantic heroes, she can't see the possibility of romance in an ordinary boy, even one as handsome and clever as Gilbert. Even in this book, she doesn't let herself indulge in any romantic flirtation with her schoolmates, and in fact is rather disdainful of all the boys of her acquaintance. Anne's imagination is always coming up with what could be even better than she has right now, whether that's puffed sleeves on new dresses or relationships that are closer or more impactful than they already are. That can make her seem ungrateful to the adults in her life. I'd love to call you Aunt Marilla, said Anne wistfully. I've never had an aunt or any relation at all, not even a grandmother. It would make me feel as if I really belonged to you. Can't I call you Aunt Marilla? No, I'm not your aunt. And I don't believe in calling people names that don't belong to them. But we could imagine you were my aunt. I couldn't, said Marilla grimly. Do you never imagine things different from what they really are? Asked Anne, wide-eyed. No. Oh, Anne drew a long breath. Oh, Miss Marilla, how much you miss. I don't believe in imagining things different from what they really are, retorted Marilla. When the Lord puts us in certain circumstances, he doesn't mean for us to imagine them away. And that statement right there from Marilla explains why it's so important for her to bring Anne down to earth. For Marilla, too much imagining implies an ungratefulness to God. For Anne, it's usually about bringing color to her world. And it takes Marilla a while to see that Anne isn't being ungrateful. In fact, you have never met a kid who is more grateful for the natural world surrounding her. It's just that Anne's use of imagination to embellish and embroider her life is about adding to, not subtracting from what she already has. When Anne first learns she is to stay at Green Gables, we have a passage in which Anne vividly imagines rich and opulent trappings for the plain little East Gable room. She covers the floor with white velvet carpet and hangs pink silk curtains in the windows and gold and silver brocade tapestries on the walls. She imagines a couch covered in silken cushions to recline on gracefully and ends by imagining herself as Lady Cordelia. She ends this interior design daydream by saying to her (laughs) reflection, you're only Anne of Green Gables, she said earnestly, and I see you just as you are looking now whenever I try to imagine I'm the Lady Cordelia. But It's a million times nicer to be Anne of Green Gables than Anne of Nowhere in particular, isn't it? And this right here is where her character arc of learning to live in reality instead of solely in her imagination starts. 
We see through the book that while Anne's daydreams and flights of fancy start off thick and fast, as her life settles in Green Gables, as she finds that she doesn't have to escape her reality anymore, we see she needs to retreat less and less into her imagination. The trip to Aunt Josephine's mansion in Charlottetown is the turning point in this journey for Anne. Here she is surrounded by luxury, the kind of which she would often spend hours imagining. Here are actual real velvet carpets on the floors and silk curtains in the windows. But Anne immediately realizes that she doesn't actually want to live in this world. Do you know I don't believe I feel very comfortable with them at all? There are so many things in this room, and it's all so splendid that there's no scope for imagination. All of a sudden, Anne's imagination goes from being a necessary coping mechanism to something that she can enjoy for fun. She finds that she loves living in her real world of small beauties and homespun comforts, and that her imagination can add some fun color or spark, but that she doesn't require it anymore to find joy. We see that at the end of the trip, crowded with luxurious experiences and fancy food, Anne is happiest coming home to simple green gables and the roast chicken that Marilla has prepared just for her. We also see that in the year following her visit to Aunt Josephine's, Anne joins the Queen's prep class and works diligently in school, applying her imagination and curiosity to her work and focusing her ambition on academic success. At the end of that school year, we can see how much Anne has come into balance when she tells Marilla, I've studied as hard all term as I possibly could. I just feel tired of everything sensible and I'm going to let my imagination run riot for the summer. Oh, you needn't be alarmed, Marilla. I'll only let it run riot within reasonable limits. But I want to have a real good jolly time this summer, for maybe it's the last summer I'll be a little girl. When I put on longer skirts, I shall feel that I have to live up to them and be very dignified. It won't even do to believe in fairies then, I'm afraid. So I'm going to believe in them with my whole heart this summer. Anne knows now the time and place for her imaginings and can lean into them wholeheartedly while also keeping her feet on the ground. I love this version of Anne, with one foot in her dreams of the past and one foot in her dreams of the future. What a perfect way to capture the feeling of being a teenager on the precipice of adulthood. Anne's maturity is apparent following her recitation at the White Sands Hotel. While Jane is envious of the jewels and diamonds of the hotel guests, Anne says, Well, I don't want to be anyone but myself, even if I go uncomforted by diamonds all my life, declared Anne. I'm quite content to be Anne of Green Gables with my string of pearl beads. I know Matthew gave me as much love with them as ever went with Madame the Pink Lady's jewels. This statement, compared with the one from the beginning of the book, in which Anne is rather disappointed to not be Lady Cordelia Fitzgerald, (laughs) shows that huge amount of growth she's gone through. She's come to find that her reality is beautiful as it is, and even finds herself to be quite enough as she is instead of wishing to be a tragic heroine in a book. She can use her imagination to embellish, but not replace by now. She doesn't need to cope with a difficult reality. She's relaxed into her reality, trusting that it is sturdy enough to support her. Even when sorrow comes to her life with Matthew's death and doesn't try to imagine it away, she lets herself experience the loss and experience the gradual easing of joy back into life despite her loss. Yeah, the through line of Anne's imagination really is such a potent character arc. And I think it's fun to sort of trace that journey that began with Lady Cordelia Fitzgerald up in the cherry tree to the grown-up young woman who, like you say, can relax into her reality. I just think that's perfect phrasing, Reagan. And I think one of the beautiful things we see with Anne is that 
so many people wanted to get rid of all of Anne's imagination, at least mm-hmm. at the beginning, and Anne finding her way to find this balance, to always be a dreamer, to see the poetry, to let herself imagine beautiful, outrageous things some of the time, but also be content and happy with the life that she does have. And I think what's interesting is the fact that Anne doesn't let go of her imaginings altogether gives her a language and an appreciation of the beauty in her life, right? She can look out on a beautiful sunset. She can look out on fresh blooming flowers and she can appreciate them through the language of poetry instead of just sort of walking past it and taking it for granted. She can let her imagination turn into metaphor to a Mm -hmm. certain extent instead of feeling like she needs it to be real all the time. Yeah, absolutely right. So that dovetails pretty nicely into our birch path where I wanted to talk about Anne in the context of the romantic poets of the era. (laughs) Ellie, is this where we get to see your English major coming out? I mean, I may have lightly plagiarized from a paper that I wrote in college for this section. (laughs) Yes, I'm super excited. I was not an English major. So yes, bring it on. Yep, here we go. So so we know that Anne is influenced by the popular media of her time. And in early chapters, Anne's speech is full of those expressions that she's clearly picked up on from reading. We already talked about a perfect graveyard of buried hopes, for instance. But even that phrase, scope for the imagination, derives from the novel A Sentimental Journey Through France and Italy by Lawrence Stern. Okay. Anne has an instinctive ear for grand turns of phrase in romantic drama, likely earned by immersing herself in poetry and literature. The poetry she reads and quotes and memorizes and acts out with her friends are largely the works of the great romantics, and Anne's imagination is aided and abetted by those works. In chapter five, Anne tells Marilla, I can read pretty well, and I know ever so many pieces of poetry off by heart. The Battle of Hohenlinden and Edinburgh After Flooden and Bingen of the Rhine and most of The Lady of the Lake and most of The Seasons by James Thompson. Don't you just love poetry that gives you a crinkly feeling up and down your back? Uh, Yes, I do, Anne. Me too. And although Thompson's The Seasons was published before the Romantic era, it was a very popular poem throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, and it contains a lot of the themes that we associate with Romanticism. Otherwise, all those poems that Anne references fall squarely within the time period we associate with the Romantic era. The Romantic era was an artistic movement that originated in Europe in the late 18th and early 19th centuries and continued until about 1850 or so. Romanticism was a backlash to the Enlightenment and Neoclassicism. So instead of mannered intellectualism, logic and reason, it was about a sort of free-spirited expression of honest emotion and the belief that what is natural and true is always beautiful. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like our girl Anne. Yeah, and so it makes sense to us that deep-feeling Anne was drawn to the Romantics. And now when we're thinking of Romantic poetry particularly, some of those big names are going to be Wordsworth and Keats, Coleridge, Byron and Shelley and Blake in England, and then Longfellow, Poe, and Whitman in the United States. Wordsworth's own description of poetry pretty much sums up Romanticism. He said that poetry should begin as the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings recollected in tranquility meaning that the artist captures his true emotions in the moment and then molds them into art. Keats's famous ode on a Grecian urn contained that most famous tenet of romanticism. Truth is beauty, beauty truth. That is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. An axiom which Anne seems to live by. 
The idea that honest expression, authenticity of emotion, and the beauty of the natural world are the most valuable, most divine human experiences. The Romantics believed that since reason and logic are man-made, pure emotion and the natural world are closest to God. In Wordsworth's poem about Tintern Abbey, the full name of the poem in typically honest yet obscure romantic style is lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour, the poet tells us, quote, and I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns, and the round ocean and the living air, and the blue sky and in the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. Although Wordsworth is visiting this glorious relic of a cathedral and a man-made monument to religious faith, he finds a stronger connection to the divine in the nature surrounding it. And that's very much aligned with Anne's view of faith, and it called to mind one of my favorite moments in Anne of Green Gables, when Anne tells Marilla that, If I really wanted to pray, I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd go out into a great big field all alone, or into the deep, deep woods, and I'd look up into the sky, up, up, up into that lovely blue sky that looks as if there were no end to its blueness, and then I'd just feel a prayer. I do love that line as well, and that there is such a spirituality to the way that Anne experiences nature. Yeah, and that's a really direct through line to Romanticism. In fact, the Romantics believed that the ability to feel divinity, to feel the sacred in nature, was a more honest and emotionally true form of expression and form of religiosity. Hmm. So like the Romantics, Anne's connection to the divine is through nature. Even on that first journey to Avonlea Church, when she bedecks her hat with wildflowers, she's signaling to the readers and the town that she feels most connected to the sublime when she is amidst nature. Anne looks to the beauty of the world around her, not just for inspiration, but for comfort, solace, and even companionship. Can I take the apple blossoms with me for company? She asks Marilla in chapter eight. And if you've grown up reading the romantic poets as Anne had, you know that flowers are friends. Recall Wordsworth's characterization of the dancing host of golden daffodils in I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud. In Gillian Beer's 1970 book, The Romance, she explained that the Romantic poets also believe that the imagination is a sort of divine sense, that the ability to create visions of beauty in your mind was a special gift that set you apart from ordinary people. Isn't that interesting? It's like a sixth sense. Yeah. If anybody has this sixth sense, it's Anne. Right. Coleridge defined imagination in his Biographia Literaria as, quote, the living power and prime agent of all human perception, and as repetition in the finite of the eternal act of creation of the infinite I am. Now, that might be a bit grandiose even for Anne, <laughs> but we see in this very book the power of a good imagination. Anne credits her powerful imagination as a saving grace during her years of neglect and want. She could always imagine better circumstances for herself, and thus she was able to retain her spirit and her joy. Artists during the Romantic era also prized what they called sensitivity or sensibility. We don't really use these words quite the same way now, but in the early 19th century, they would have described the capacity for deep feeling, for being sensitive, emotional, and intuitive. So if you're familiar with Jane Austen's book, Sense and Sensibility, then you have encountered this usage. Sense refers to Eleanor, the elder sister who is dutiful, reserved, polite, and who represses her emotions, while sensibility refers to her younger sister, Marianne, who wears her heart on her sleeve, who is impulsive, and who is guided by her emotions. That book beautifully illustrates some of the same conflicts that Anne experiences, 
Like Marianne, sensitive Anne wishes to live an emotionally pure and honest life, but she's held back by the mores of her society. Anne, like the romantic poets she adores, believes in the truth and beauty of her emotions. Another common theme in romantic era art and literature was epic, mythological, supernatural, or other fantasy motifs. The romantic poets created a fantasy version of the feudal era, especially Sir Walter Scott, whom we know that Anne particularly revered. Scott's The Lady of the Lake and The Lay of the Last Minstrel include all of those themes of heroic battles, doomed loves, and medieval chivalry that Anne adores. Anne also learned Sir Walter Scott's Marmion, A Tale of Flood and Field by heart as part of her Queen's Entrance Studies, and she murmurs it to herself, enjoying the high drama and pathos. So much of Anne's rich fantasy life can be traced back to the Romantics, from the dryad that recalls Keats' Ode on a Nightingale to the ghosts of the haunted wood, reminiscent of the gothic thrills of Coleridge's Christabel. Regan, I could talk about this forever. I love it. I learned so much. (laughs) There is a lot of scholarship out there about Anne and Romanticism and the authors who inspired Ellen Montgomery. And honestly, it is well worth doing the research to learn more on this topic. I'm hopeful we'll get a chance to talk about this some more in later episodes. But for now, let me just say this. Looking at all the writers who we either know influenced Anne because she quoted them directly or who appear to have influenced her imagination, I really need to know, where was she able to access so many books? I mean, that certainly was one well-stocked orphanage. Well, what's interesting is, remember, she tells Marilla how the older girls would lend her their fifth readers. So maybe it's just that Canadian education at that time was really heavily into the romantics. I mean, I think that's likely true, right? So if Anne, we know that Anne of Green Gables is set sometime in sort of the latter half of the 1870s. So it makes sense that poetry that was published in the 18 teens and 20s and 30s would have been the kind of thing that was vetted and was appearing in sort of the, you know, the general curriculum. Yeah. And clearly the things that Anne was seeking out herself to learn. Right. <laughs> Very much so. But yeah, no, there's there's so much interesting overlap between the themes of romantic era poetry and the life that Anne was designing for herself and her own imagination. Thank you so much for that. I learned so much. I loved it. But let's transition now into talking about some puffed sleeve moments. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite Anne quotes that resonated with me as a child and still resonates with me today is Anne talking about her vocabulary. Mm. People laugh at me because I use big words, but if you have big ideas, you have to use big words to express them, haven't you? I love how Anne appreciates the specificity in big words, and she appreciates the poetry of how they roll over her tongue, even when she's not quite sure what they mean. (laughs) Anne's big vocabulary is often laughed over by other adults, and she feels that sting, but I really appreciate Anne's deep love of language and her ability to use the language that is so inspiring to her. I also enjoy using big words when they're appropriate because there's just something so satisfying about using the exact word you want and the breadth of the English language gives us so much to choose from. Oh, yeah. I was just thinking about that today, Reagan. Interestingly, I'm reading this book where the author uses like incredibly precise vocabulary, and I've actually had to look up several words while I've read, which is something I hardly ever do. It really makes me appreciate how much we can do with language. I really do love a good vocabulary expanding book. And yes, it's, it's funny. So 
I, when I read to my daughter, one of the things I kind of love about my kid, I mean, she's a cool kid and I love a lot about her, <laughs> but we, so, and we still read, even though she's obviously perfectly capable of reading very big books on her own. And she does, we still really love reading out loud at night. My husband and I take turns like picking a book and reading out loud. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love about her is that if I'm reading a word that she doesn't understand, she'll stop me and ask me to explain it. And sometimes trying to figure out how to explain, like, I know what it means, but how do I say what it means? And do I actually know what it means? Or am I just assuming I know what it means? So it's really fun. And it's fun to, it's a fun way to build her vocabulary too. I love it. Well, and I love that little challenge for you and your husband too, because there are so many words that we are like maybe 80% sure we know the definition of them, right? We have had seen them enough in things that we've read or have enough sort of context cues to be able to make a good guess. But sometimes, yeah, until someone's actually asking you to define it, you don't really know, do you? (laughs) I know, I know. We are reading tonight and we're reading the book, The Ogress and the Orphans by Kelly Barnhill, another (laughs) orphan book. And Kelly Barnhill does a beautiful job really picking vocabulary that is interesting to hear that Mm -hmm. she's interested in, but isn't like so obscure that it gets in the way of her enjoying the story. So dilapidated was a word today where she asked me what that meant. Oh, that's such a fun word. It's a great word, right? I love an author who can pick just a word that is as fun to say or fun to hear as it is sort of unique. Yeah. Reading out loud, I really come to appreciate books that are good to read out loud because some books Mm -hmm. are fine to read on your own, but reading them out loud, you're like, oh, no. Right. It's tedious. I've definitely read some books to her where I was like, okay, you need to read the rest of these books on your own. This is not a read out loud. (laughs) But there are some books where I'm like, oh, these are fun to read out loud. I really enjoy reading these out loud. So well, I have to say that one book that I super am enjoying reading out loud, at least the passages that we've read in on the pod has been Anna Freen Gables. Me too. This is such a great read out loud book. There are so many beautiful turns of phrases and, you know, fun uses of language. I love getting to read passages. Can I tell you, this is kind of a sidebar, but I'll tell you this. Yeah. Anyway, when I was in college, I had a little girl that I babysat very, very regularly for all the way through college. Her her parents were friends of our family and her mom was reading her Anne of Green Gables out loud. And so- mm-hmm. One of the times I was babysitting for her, I was reading her a couple of chapters. She had this bunk bed. So she was on the top bunk and I was lying on the bottom bunk. And so I was reading, I don't remember which section of Anna Green Gables to her. And she's like, Reagan, that book sounds like it was written for you to read out loud. And I was like, what a compliment. That is the nicest thing that somebody ever said to me. So wow. Shout out to Lizzie, who is now a lovely grown-up adult adult. of her own. Oh, what a wonderful story, Reagan. Still one of the nicest things somebody's ever said. Anyway, sidebar. Okay, well, that makes me think, while we're off on this tangent, and I know I will get to my puff sleeve moment uh, presently, listeners, um, but I'm going to jump ahead really quickly because I want to recommend the Owl's Nest Classics edition of Anne of Green Gables. This was published in 2022, so it's quite recently published, and it's specifically an edition for contemporary middle grade readers. Oh. And 
Yeah, there's fabulous footnotes. The editor who put this together has just the best footnotes. And one of the words that she defines in the footnotes is the word dudgeon. At one point, I think Mrs. Lind, of course, is in high dudgeon about something or other. And the editor, her name is Katie Stewart. Um, She includes this footnote where she explains, as a child, I always thought this word meant dungeon because it's only one letter off. But in fact, that's not the meaning of the word. And then, you know, she does go on to define it as a moment where you've taken great offense. And it's just that kind of thing where she's really in conversation with like a younger reader to sort of explain like, now it would make sense why you might think that a word meant this or a certain aphorism or metaphor or something like that would be interpreted this way. actually this is what the author is trying to do it's very i love it and now i need that copy i'll bring it over for you and alice yeah for sure it's great okay so so back on track (laughs) and my puff sleeve moment here is just going to be a quote that i just love i think is such a moment that is quintessentially Anne, and i don't think we could conclude an episode about Anne and imagination without including it so here it is she had been reading but her book had slipped to the floor And now she was dreaming with a smile on her parted lips. Glittering castles in Spain were shaping themselves out of the mists and rainbows of her lively fancy. Adventures wonderful and enthralling were happening to her in cloudland. Adventures that always turned out triumphantly and never involved her in scrapes like those of actual life. Of course, and then that quote does foreshadow one of the most actual romantic moments uh, in the series later on. So really special moment there in the text. I love that quote. I think it's so beautiful. Yeah. Glittering castles in Spain. So Mm -hmm. moving on to our inspired by Anne moment. I also, I guess I sort of cheated by introducing the um, Owl's Nest Classics edition of Anne of Green Gables. So um, here's my second No, no, this is just a bonus. That was a bonus. (laughs) Bonus. Okay. That was a bonus recommendation. So my... My true inspired by Anne today is that I wanted to introduce everybody to Persephone Books, which is a British publisher that specializes in quote unquote forgotten 20th century literature. So this imprint mostly publishes books written by women in the early to mid 20th century, and they tend to focus on lighter stories that are often humorous and sort of focus on the domestic realm. These books are, I think, the natural children of Anna Green Gables, and it's a great place to look for stories with a similar tone and feel to Montgomery's work. Right now, I'm reading The Young Pretenders by Edith Henrietta Fowler, in which a young child runs away from her caregivers and tries to pretend to live in the world of adults. The main character, Babs, is one part Ramona Quimby, one part Sarah Crewe, and one part Anne. She's precocious, tactless, hilarious, imaginative, and prone to scrapes. So anyway, go get lost on their website, persephonebooks.com, where they have really compelling descriptions of all the books and also previews of the beautiful end pages for all their editions, which are inspired by mid-century fabric samples. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, you can really get lost on the site. I bet, I bet. Just why I need more books for my to-be-read pile. Right. (laughs) I know. Sorry, everyone. Well, my Inspired by Anne today is going to be the art of Jane Mount at idealbookshelf.com. Oh, yeah. Jane Mount does gorgeous illustration of bookshelves filled with illustrations of favorite books directly inspired by the actual spines of the books with shelves curated for all different categories. So on idealbookshelf.com, she has prints of bookshelves dedicated to different genres, banned books, specific authors, specific identities, lots of bookshelves dedicated to kids' books. And Anne appears on the middle grade shelf, on lovely classics, on girl stars. That's actually, that's a great shelf. Oh, I have to check this out. 
Yes. And here's the really cool thing. You can commission a custom bookshelf and get a print of it. You can also get it printed on like mugs and other things like that. So after some lead heavy hints dropped (laughs) on my part, my husband got me one for the holidays this year. So he got me a custom bookshelf. And so I chose 10 of my favorite childhood books. And then she, you know, designs it. She has a library of an immense amount of books. So you can get a bookshelf customed with almost any book you could think of. So I chose, I chose 10 of my favorite childhood books and I'm so in love with the way it turned out. Can you guess what books were on my shelf? Okay, 10 of your favorite childhood books. So I think that the sort of center of the bingo square here is going to be Anne of Green Gables. Yes. All Creatures Great and Small. Yep. One of the Alana books. Yes. And I love the one that she chose for it because she chose the original cover, which is the book that I read growing up, like the one from the library. Oh, that's the best. That's the best, right? Because it's not some edition you're not familiar with. It's like, this is what I saw on my shelf growing up. Exactly. Exactly. And I actually found uh, a used version of it from thriftbooks.com like about a year ago. So anyway, so that's a sidebar. But yeah, so Alana, the first adventure. And I don't know, Reagan, help me out. The Phantom Tollbooth. Oh, sure. The Princess Bride. Mm. Harry Potter, which technically wasn't my childhood, but it was really formative. I think that that deserves a place for sure. Yeah. Ballet Shoes. Loved all the shoes. Oh, ballet growing shoes. Up. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Yes. Oh. The first Nancy Drew book. And she even did like the 60s version, The Yellow Spines. So cool. Iconic. Love it. Yes. Yes. And A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, A Wrinkle in Time. I should have guessed A Wrinkle in Time for sure. Oh, I love that, Reagan. I cannot wait to see it in real life. That's going to be great. And the, you know, you got me one of her prints a while ago. You can see it behind me. Listeners, I'm sorry, we're on Zoom right now. And so you can see <laughs> behind me in my home office, my Jane Mount print. And the one that Reagan picked out for me is all romance novel themed. And she did an amazing job picking out which romance novels to include. It's such a great breadth of books, both contemporary and classic with a huge diversity in authors. And it's just it's really beautiful and behind me in my home office for zooms no one can tell they're all romance novels and it just looks like I'm a highly literary person which you are (laughs) you are see today's birch path but yeah so uh so listeners if you're looking for some book themed art for your walls the the prints are really reasonable and even the custom ones are are very reasonable but you can find so many prints that for almost any situation so that's idealbookshelf.com yeah, I'm I'm sorry, listeners. We have given you guys some real rabbit holes to go down today between Ideal Bookshelf and Persephone Books. Well, so thank you all so very much for joining us today, Kindred Spirits. As always, we are grateful for your listenership and engagement with this nerdy little project of ours. <laughs> <laughs> we have one more episode coming that's all about Anne before we start moving into some of the more recent adaptations of Anne of Green Gables. And we can't wait to share with you everything we have in store. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcast or give us a follow on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub. We appreciate you guys so much. Bye, kindred spirits. 